Good morning, everybody. What we are going to talk about today, this morning, is going to be a little difficult for some of you to get your minds around. So uh, let me give you a little context for it or a little word picture that may help you, 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 um, you embrace it here. Up until the time of a guy named Louis Pasteur, people in the medical community believed in something that we now refer to as spontaneous generation. And that is the idea that living organisms could just pop up out of nowhere. Uh, so, for example, a disease would, would, would pop up in somebody's body and doctors would assume that, well, it either must have been genetic or, uh, or maybe the person had too much blood in their body, so we've got to let some of that blood out, or maybe it's even the hand of God. And, um, they just thought that sometimes these bacteria, these diseases could come out of nowhere. Um, guy named Louis Pasteur demonstrated that spontaneous generation in the natural world was impossible. And he proved that all life came from other pre-existing life, which meant that if somebody contracted a disease, it didn't just happen. It had to be caused by little tiny microscopic organisms called microbes or germs that we can't see with our eyes. Now, later, when we developed powerful enough microscopes, we figured out that these little microbes, these little germs are everywhere. Right? I mean, you know, by the time you leave this place this morning, you will have breathed in thousands of them. You know, I read that at any given moment, we have over 20 million of these little microbes on our skin, crawling and feeding and hooking up and breeding. I mean, just that's what's going on all around you, right? And so uh, we have a, a way of dealing with those things, and uh, that is what I'm doing right here, right now. In fact, some of you, this is probably more important to you than your wallet when you come to a place like this. Uh, this is one of the greatest inventions ever. Uh, I carry this on me. You just come down here. That way when I'm talking to somebody that just looks dirty, I can just kind of open it up and sort of do it down there and then do that so I don't have to worry about it. Or I give these to my kids when we go places and I can just nod at them be like, now it's time to, to cleanse that. Um, that's how we deal with that. But because we understand now that having seen these things through a microscope that we're actually more afraid of the world we can't see than the world that we can't see now, right? But back in the medical community, back in Louis Pasteur's days, that wasn't the case. In fact, a lot of people rejected his theories at first because they're like, you're trying to tell us that all the things that we can see, all these sicknesses we observe with our eyes, you're trying to tell us that all of that comes from things that we can't see. There was another guy, uh, Ignaz Simmelweiss was, I think, his name. Even before Louis Pasteur, he figured out that there was something going on because he would watch as doctors would do work on diseased patients and then go try to deliver a baby from a woman. They would never wash their hands. And all these women, you know, now it seems so obvious, but all these women were dying. And he's like, you know, there's got to be something that we can't see that is in this diseased person or in this cadaver of a, of a dead person. There, there's got to be something that's causing this. And he used to plead with this medical community, just wash your hands. But nobody listened to him because it was just too much for them to get their mind around the fact that things that they could see were caused by things that they could not see. The reason I share all that is here we are today, obviously, and we have really powerful microscopes and we can see lots of those things. But Paul ends the book of Ephesians with a discussion that is very, very similar in that he shows them that much of the what they experience and see in the world is ultimately caused by a whole world that they cannot see. So he ends, <coughs> excuse me, Ephesians 6, he begins his last section, which we're going to spend two or three weeks on here, starting in verse 11. He says, quote, put on the whole armor of God. 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Now, this has actually sort of been a confusing verse to me, that verse 12, because Paul certainly did wrestle against flesh and blood, right? I mean, he was beaten at least four times, not by a spirit, but by a Roman whip. That's flesh and blood. He was criticized by flesh and blood. He was imprisoned by flesh and blood. He was abandoned by friends of his who were flesh and blood. So he wrestled against flesh and blood. But what he is saying is that he realizes that he doesn't wrestle only with flesh and blood. Behind that world of flesh and blood, Paul recognized the presence of a powerful and active spirit world. He calls them cosmic powers of darkness, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, or spiritual forces of unbelievable power in the oppressive governments, in the dysfunctional relationships, in his bouts with loneliness and depression and even sickness, and in his struggle with pride and temptation, there was something he recognized that was larger and much more powerful at work, a world he could not see with his eyes. C.S. Lewis made the statement in his book, Screwtape Letters, whose spirit sometimes people think maybe inhabits my body, the amount that I quote him. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this, When it comes to devils and demons, there are two equally wrong and equally damaging errors. The first, he said, is to disbelieve in their existence, but the other is to have an unhealthy interest in them. Those are the two errors I'm going to try to address and deal with over the next two or three weeks out of Ephesians 6. Two errors that people in our culture, in our day, two errors they make about the spirit world. Here they are again, in case you want to jot these down. Number one, failing to recognize that the spirit world is there. That's the first one. Failing to recognize that it's there. And then secondly, engaging the spirit world wrongly. Engaging the spirit world wrongly. All right, let's jump into the first one, and uh, we'll spend most of our time, or a lot of our time on that one, then we're going to hit the second one shortly, and we're going to pick up on a lot more of it next week. Number one, failing to recognize the spirit world is there. Now, the Ephesians to whom Paul is writing, they had absolutely no trouble believing in the presence of demons. The Ephesians were a very spiritual and a very superstitious people. If you recall, back when we started this series on Ephesians, I walked you through Acts 19, where Paul first enters into Ephesus. And one of the things that he does when he gets there is he starts to cast out demons. And I told you there was this local Ghostbusters-type squad that thought that this was great. Here's Paul casting out demons. So they would go up to people that they thought had demons, and they would say, Hey, hey, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches to come out of this person. And one of the greatest scenes in all of the book of Acts one of the demons that they're trying to cast out actually stops and has a conversation with them. This is verse 16 of chapter 19, if you want to look at it later. One of the demons says, uh, excuse me, um, who, Jesus I know, I know Jesus, and Paul I have heard of. Which, I told you again, makes me laugh every time, of wondering, what does that tell us about this? Paul I've heard of. Like there's some kind of newsletter that's gone out about Paul, talking about who's hot and who's not in the, in, in the Christian world. He's like, you gotta get you gotta get this pet cat Paul. I mean, we were talking, this guy is all right, so Jesus a no, right? But Paul I've heard of. But who are you? And it says, verse 16, that the spirit was so ticked off that they were trying to throw him out that he leapt on them, verse 16, and he mastered them so that they fled out naked and wounded. Remember, I pointed out, like, did he really need to say naked and wounded? 
Because when you're in a fight and somebody beats the clothes off of you, you're wounded in about every possible way, right? That's a physical wound, that's a psychological wound, it's an emotional wound. Somebody beats the pants off of you, that's something you're going to be dealing with for a while, right? So these people, suffice it to say, they're very aware of the spirit world, very aware of the spirit world. Our culture that we live in has the opposite error. We tend to think that educated people don't really believe in the demonic. They don't show up in our microscopes, and we have microscopes that can see down to the, some of the smallest matter in the universe. We can see electrons through our microscope, and you know, we're scientific people, so, hey, we can't see them. You can't reproduce them in a test tube. So they're not there. They can't be real because we can't see them. So let me explain to you just for a few minutes here why I do. Why I do, as just almost by way of introduction into this, I'm going to explain to you why I do and why I've come to be convinced of their existence and why I think something that educated people um, would only not believe in to their peril. Okay, here is number one. There's no question that the Bible presents them as real with passages like this one. You know, I mean, it, it's crystal clear that the Bible writers are talking about it as if it's real. Primarily for me, it's the life of Jesus. Jesus spent his whole ministry casting out demons. We're not talking about like a side kind of element of his ministry. We're talking about one of the major motifs in his life. And if demons are not real, then Jesus is reduced to a buffoon, right? Or at least a guy who played on people's imaginations or a comic book figure. I trust at the end of the day, y'all, I trust that Jesus understands the realities of the universe better than I do. And if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you believe that he reveals truth, then you don't really have the option to not believe in an active and vibrant spirit world because he very clearly did. And I've taught you before that faith is accepting what I cannot understand based on what I can understand. And if you understand that Jesus is the Son of God, if you understand that Jesus is the revealer of truth, then I can embrace even things I can't see and get my mind around because I trust and I believe in him who raised from the dead and revealed truth to me. So number one is I believe in it because Jesus believed in it and the Bible clearly teaches it. The second reason I believe in the spirit world, the reason I believe that world is real, is number two, we can see the effects of the demonic world in our world. We can see the effects of the demonic world in our world. Just like people in the 1850s could see the effects of disease before they could see the actual germs, we can see the effects of demons. You say, well, well how so? Well, look at the two names that Satan is called in this passage. One in verse 11, one in verse 12. Verse 11, he's called a schemer. In verse 12, he's called a ruler. Let's look at those one at a time. Schemer, verse 11, means that his role is to deceive. He comes up with schemes of deception. You say, well, what scheme is he up to? Well, you've got to understand who he is and where he came from. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14, describe the genesis or the beginning of Satan, specifically his fall. Um, Satan, uh, evidently, was one of the highest angels, um, one of the archangels um, that God had created, and many scholars, many commentators believe that he was like the, 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 the worship pastor, <laughs> basically, for, for lack of better terms. Uh, it's not personal. I'm just saying that's what he was, all right? So he was the worship pastor. And one day he decided he didn't want to be that anymore. He wanted to be sitting on the throne. Uh, and so he makes a speech that Isaiah records. And maybe this was an internal speech. I don't know. But he, here's the way it goes. I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like the most high God. You go look at these verses, you'll see five times Satan says, I will. I will because I know better than God. I will because I want to be the point in that God. I will because I want to be in charge. And I'll do what I want to do because I want to be God. I will. 
That's why I've told you and I tell my children, that when you think of sin, sin is the big I problem. That's all it is. S-I-N. Take the middle letter of the word sin. It's when I do what I want to do instead of what God wants me to do. And you might think it's relatively harmless because you may not think of yourself as that bad of a person. But when you say, I will, instead of God's will, at that point you have undergone cosmic treason of the worst possible type. I will. Sin is the I problem. And so what Satan is scheming is to get people to choose the same path that he chose. To repeat after him, my will be done instead of God, thy will be done. Or in the words of Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. That is not a song you want to be humming on Judgment Day. I assure you that, okay? He is scheming to get people to do what he did. I went through the New Testament and tried to pull out this week most of the places where it describes how Satan goes about that. In addition to the stories in the Gospels where you've got him possessing people and making them crazy and all kinds of stuff like that, I just went through the epistles mainly and began to pull out what he was up to. Watch this. Um, John 8.44. By the way, I put this on a little thing that we put inside your worship guide because I knew this would drive some of you crazy trying to write all this down. So Uncle J.D. put it on a worse thing for you to, to read and study over later, okay? So don't try to write all this down. Pull out that little yellow sheet and rebuke yourself for not having looked at your worship guide yet, okay? All right. John 8, 44, Jesus told us that the devil is the father of lies. 1 John 3, 10 calls him the father of hatred and murder. 1 Timothy 4, 1 says he spins out false doctrines and corrupts existing doctrines. 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15 says that he imitates religious authorities. He loves to put on pastor clothes. Even giving many of these religious leaders the ability to imitate signs and wonders. Genesis 3, 1-7 shows us that the devil plants doubts in people's minds about the Word of God. Which means he teaches at seminaries sometimes. He makes people forget about death and impending judgment. And he puffs people up with a sense of self-sufficiency. 1 Corinthians 7, 5 tells us that he tempts the saints, specifically the saints, with illicit sex. 2 Corinthians 2.11 tells us that he turns unresolved anger into bitterness in the hearts of God's people. 1 Thessalonians 2.18 tells us he puts obstacles in the way of God's missionaries. Romans 16 verses 17-20 tell us he sows discord and division over doctrine and leadership among God's people. In Matthew 4 we see that he tempts us with power and makes us question God's love for us and question our identity in him. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he blinds the minds of unbelievers. In Ephesians 2, 2, he keeps unbelievers attracted to their sins and even ensnares them so they get addicted to their sins and desire. 2 Timothy 2, 26. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, he attacks faith wherever he finds it. 1 Timothy 3, 6, he puffs up Christian leaders with pride so they fall. Then 2 Timothy 2, 24, he brings to the minds of unbelievers the pride and the fall of Christians so they won't take the gospel seriously. Y'all see this? He is a schemer. And I would say you probably can see the effects of these things in your own life. I know I certainly can in mine. Some of you, this is exactly where you are right now. That's what's behind your confusion. That's what's behind the temptations that is what is behind some of you, your depression and your despair. And just because you can't see it at work doesn't mean that it's not there. 
Don't just dismiss it as not being there. Don't make the mistake that people made 150 years ago of ignoring something that was powerful and destructive because they couldn't see it. Here's the second word that's used to describe him. Verse 12, ruler. Ruler or authority or spiritual forces, which means that he controls many of the world's systems. Now, there's a question among theologians. We'll let you in on this because I think it's, it's actually kind of important. Verse 12, they wonder whether or not that when Paul says domains and powers and authorities, whether or not Paul's referring to actual earthly authorities like Caesar, or if it's a reference to something above that that is unseen that, you know, then just, you know, is, is not really talking about the presidencies and the, the rulers of the people in our world. And you've got theologians on both sides. But there's many other commentators, myself among them, although I'm not an authority on Ephesians at all, that think that Paul actually left that deliberately ambiguous because he's talking about both of them. What he's, he's showing you is that behind the Caesars of this world, there is another authority structure that is at work in and through the existing earthly power f- structures, making them his, making them accomplish his will, and that he is dominating the direction of the most powerful institutions on earth. You say, that's a little like gloom and doomish. Yeah, I realize. But let, let, let me show you another conversation Jesus had that's just absolutely fascinating. The, the, um, the temptation. Satan takes Jesus high up on a mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Says, you bow down to me, I'll give you these. But here's what's amazing to me is the logic that Satan uses. Listen to this. It's Luke 4, 6. To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. And here's the thing, y'all. Jesus doesn't dispute that. He's not like, no, man, shut up. He acknowledges that that is true. Now, it's true that Satan's authority is a derivative and a temporary, temporary authority. He couldn't have any authority if God wasn't temporarily tolerating it. But the fact remains that for now, he's the predominant influence and he is the ruler. Or check out the scene in Daniel 10. This is one of my favorite places in the Bible and most confusing. Daniel, the prophet of Daniel and the lion's den vein. He's praying and in the midst of his prayer, an angel shows up. And the angel is so large and so glorious that Daniel falls down like he's going to die. Which, by the way, the little picture that we have of angels is kind of chubby with little white satin robes and harps and shooting Not at all true. I've never seen an angel, but I can tell you that's not true. Because here's why. Every time somebody in the Bible sees an angel, the angel's first words are, Don't die! Don't die! I know you think you're going to die, but you're not. And that's what the angel does here with Daniel. She puts his hand on his shoulder and says, Fear not! Fear not! Now watch this. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I've come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Okay, so Daniel starts praying a month ago. And the angel gets dispatched to go and deal with Daniel and help him out in his prayer. But en route, somehow he gets tied up with the prince of Persia. And they're duking it out, and they're wrestling it out, and there's all kinds of stuff going on. And he says, I got held up for 21 days. So I had to, you know, call my buddy Michael, who's the archangel, and he's got a lot of, like, people. And so he rolls up. Um, he came to help me, because you know, I was stuck there with the king of Persia. Now i got to return to fight against the prince of Persia. I just had to get away for a little bit, come talk to you, and then i got to go back. And when I go out, the prince of Greece will come. What are you talking about? 
every once in a while, you get this little glimpse of some stuff going on in the background. You're like, what in the world? Suffice it to say, Satan is the ruler and he's the power behind this world. He is the dominating influence. The world governments are his governments. Its Wall Street is his Wall Street. Its entertainment is his entertainment. Its record companies are his record companies. Its newspapers are his newspapers. Its educational system is his educational system. And if you want to exceed in those arenas, he's going to bombard you with enticement to play by his rules. That certainly does not mean you should not be there and should not be active because we're to be there showing the subversive, revolutionary kingdom of Jesus in those. But what that means is that because they are so influenced, he is going to always bombard you to play by his rules. And I would tell you that whether you're religious or not, whether you are spiritual or not, you can see unmistakable evidence of his work in and through human history and that he has indeed ruled it. You look at certain chapters of human history and you're like, how could that have happened? I take for example the, the Holocaust. Have you ever talked to a German person about the Holocaust? They're immediately hit with a mortified embarrassment. You ever talk to them about this? Because they can't understand how that could have happened in their country. We're not talking about an afternoon where everybody got ticked off and went out and did some racist things. We're talking about years of scheming and planning the complete annihilation of a certain type of person. It was not only justified by philosophers and ratified by government um, leaders. It was backed by religious leaders in Germany at, at the time. And you get away from that and they look back on it from you know, 40, 50 years later and they're like, I don't know how that could have happened. The Bible says, well, I can tell you how it happened. There was an enemy whose goal was to kill, to steal, and to destroy that was taking some of the natural weaknesses of mankind and was amplifying them and pouring nitrous on them until it turned into utter annihilation. Or take another one, child pornography. We're talking about something beyond aberrant desires. Wouldn't you agree? And I've even known of people that who were in that for a while, and after they got out, they almost look back on it and say the same kind of thing, like, I'm not even sure what I don't understand how I could have gotten into that. The Bible will tell you why. Because you have an enemy who is scheming to kill and pervert and twist and destroy. He amplifies evil and persuades us to do the most vile things. Can't you see that? Can't you see that there is something greater at work in the world than just human dysfunction or bad parenting? I mean, seriously, even if you don't consider yourself religious, and even if you're like, I don't believe in this stuff, look at human history. Can't you see that there's something beyond just human dysfunction? Our culture doesn't recognize the reality of the spirit world. I, I will point out, though, that interestingly to me, the idea of evil has made a comeback in our century. You see, at the beginning of the 20th century, the idea was that evil could all be explained by psychological and sociological and biological factors. And the idea was if you could change those factors, give people better homes, better education, change your economic status, then everything would just self-correct. And then we live for the bloodiest century of mankind. And a lot of people coming out the other side are like, wait a minute, where does all that come from? The Bible has an answer. It comes from an enemy whose role is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. A guy named Andrew Del Banco, a self-described secular liberal at Columbia University, recently wrote a book called The Death of Satan. And it got a lot of interest and attention. 
He opens the book. The first lines in these books are, are these very poignant lines. Listen to this. A gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and our intellectual resources for coping with it. The evil that was always there is still there. But since we have gotten rid of the idea of sin and sinners, and we've gotten rid of the idea of original sin, and we've gotten rid of the idea of the devil, and we've gotten rid of the idea of all the transcendent aspects of evil, now we're absolutely astounded by the fact that there is clearly something beyond what we can manage or control here, but we have no way of dealing with it anymore. Del Banco says he thinks the best place in modern literature where this is evident is in the novel that later became a movie, The Silence of the Lamps. Hannibal Lecter, Anthony Hopkins, is an incredibly evil man, and Jodie Foster, who plays Officer Starling, at one point is listening to the things that Anthony Hopkins or Hannibal Lecter is saying, and she interrupts with him. She says, wait, what could have made you like this? What happened to you? And Del Banco notes in his book, he said, those are such modern questions she is asking. They assume that we're only wrestling with flesh and blood. So what biological thing caused this? What psychological thing? Did your parents not potty train you right? Is that what's going on here? And Hannibal looks back at her. Do you remember the scene? Hannibal looks back at her and says, and I worked on my Anthony Hopkins imitation all week long, but it's still nowhere near where I could actually pull this off, so I'm just going to read it as J.D. Um, why? Nothing has happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Oh, it's never anybody's fault, is it? Look at me, Officer Starling. Can't you stand to say that even I am evil? Del Banco makes the comment in the book. He says, these words are the epitome of the modern horror and dilemma. The horror of knowing that we cannot answer the monster's question. So maybe you are not religious at all. But I'm just telling you, most of us can see things that are going on in the world that are beyond biological abnormalities. And I would even argue one step further that most of you, practically speaking, can see the effects of the spirit world on your own life. And in your own family. You guys ever look back on a certain time in your life? Be honest. You don't have to shake your head because I know it's true. Look back on a certain time in your life, some decision you made, and you ask, what could I possibly have been thinking? But at the time, it made perfect sense. It seemed attractive. It seemed like a no-brainer. People tried to talk you out of it, but they couldn't because it just made so much sense. And you're like, what? happened to me during that time well, the Bible tell you I know exactly what happened there's an enemy who took your own desires and amplified them and twisted them against you for some of you that is what you're dealing with right now what you're dealing with is more than flesh and blood the timing and the strengths of the temptations that are coming at you the timing is too perfect and the strength is too great for it to be something simply natural the suggestions that are filling your heart about different things is more than just your own subconscious. The fierceness of the opposition that some of you are facing in your marriage and in accomplishing what God wants you to do, it's not natural. The difficulty some of you even had getting here this morning is beyond natural. My whole point is this. We are in a war. 
And we live in a society that doesn't recognize the presence of the spirit world because we can't see it in a microscope. But don't be so naive. Just because you can't see it in a microscope doesn't mean it's not there. Let me make one more comment about this before I move off of this and and go on because there's such a large segment of our church that's going to struggle with this because we live in a very, you know, um, number one educational hub in America, more PhDs per capita in Raleigh-Durham than anywhere else in the world. So let me me adjust this for just a second. Some of you hear this and you're like, wait a minute. I am studying to be a scientist and I got the whole scientific method that I'm working on. And I mean, come on, if you're a scientist and you're analyzing the weather and you're like, well, that hurricane might have been caused by a low pressure system. Or a demon was just really ticked off. I'm not really sure which one. You're going to get laughed out of the academy. And you're like, if I believed in what you're saying, I couldn't be a scientist. Fair enough. But let me expand your mind just a tad. You need to realize that when the Bible talks about the effects of the spirit world, it puts them as moral and spiritual forces and not so much natural and biological ones. God set up the world to run naturally. And what science does is it rediscovers the principles that God has already laid down known as natural law. And they are consistent, and that's why you can repeat them in a test too. If God ever does interrupt the natural laws of history, like when he raised Jesus from the dead, then he'll make it obvious. Okay? Like in raising Jesus from the dead. That's pretty obvious. But that doesn't mean that you no longer let the rules of nature rule your experiments. Because God set them up. So you don't have to abandon even slightly the scientific method. What I am saying to you is this. You need to realize that there are certain realities and dimensions to our world that are not captured by a microscope. And just like you have a category for scientific realities, you need a category for spiritual realities. And the instruments used to detect one are not the same used to detect another. And when you use a microscope to try to detect spiritual realities, that's as crazy as me saying, I wonder if there's radio waves in here. And put my finger on me like, no, I can't feel them. They're not here. You're like, the wrong instrument. Or, or, if there, or you know, I, was, I wanted to see if a room had a light on. So I put my hand in there and was like, let me feel. Nope, I can't feel any light. Not there. That'd be crazy. Wrong instruments. Or, or, or this one. Well, what if you, you know, like, I'm trying, to fig- I'm trying to prove to my wife that I love her. So I got a DNA sample. And clearly she's going to be able to see in the DNA sample that I love her. That's not the right instrument to detect the emotion of love. You, you see what I'm getting at? Just like you got a category for scientific realities, you need one for spiritual realities, and the instruments used to detect the one are not the same to use to detect the other. It's like Horatio, or um, Hamlet said to Horatio, or Shakespeare through Hamlet said to Horatio. Right? There are more... Um, I'll mess this up. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are present and dreamt of in your little philosophy. So I'm just saying expand your mind and realize what category goes where. So the first error that people make about the spirit world is that they fail to recognize it is there. Here is the second error that people make. Number two, engaging it wrongly. Engaging it wrongly. So let's turn our attention to that one with our remaining time today. Paul talks about engaging in warfare with these demonic realities. And here's what he tells the Ephesians. Listen. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, next week, we're going to actually go through this list in a little more detail, and all our worship pastors and all of our campuses are actually going to dress up in this spiritual armor, okay? And leave, no, I'm kidding, they're not going to do that. Um, But we are going to go through this in a little more detail, but for now, let me just make a few observations about the list in general, okay? Pretty clearly, there are both defensive and offensive weapons. 
Your defensive armor is in verses 14 through 17, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes for the spread of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. Those are all defensive. There are offensive weapons. There are only two of those, and they're given in verses 17 and 18, and that is simply the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and prayer. Now, here's, here's the thing. You ready? This is going to disappoint some of you terribly. It, it really is. These things that he gives you are not that weird. Right? No Harry Potter magic wands. No special words. They're actually quite plain, at least the way you and I would think of them, they are. Truth, salvation, faith, the Word of God, prayer. And I want you to hear me out. Some of you, this is really going to offend you, and I need you to wait to the very end of this talk, this talk, and maybe even next week before you write me off totally. So just hang with me, okay? Paul does not here instruct them to engage the territorial spirits. He doesn't say, you've got to figure out who the prince of Ephesus is. You've got to figure out who the prince of Durham is. Some of our UNC fans would be like, that's easy, that's Mike Krzyzewski. He's saying, no, no, no. He's not saying you do any of that stuff. Y'all, I've been in a lot of Christian circles, and so have some of you, where they tried to do just that. I've been told, Pastor, and before your church grows at all, before you really do any good, you've got to bind the strong man of the area before God can do his work. A lot of times this gets combined with sort of a weird kind of prayer walking where you go claim ground for Jesus and you banish the demons out of the area. Again, I hate to disappoint you, but Paul doesn't mention that here at all. The same thing is true. I mean, we really cost us here. Again, please just hang with me. And I'll acknowledge there's a lot of stuff I don't understand yet. But the same thing is true. You, you with me? I'm being cautious here because I consider myself a raging charismatic who doesn't speak in tongues. Okay? So our charismatic friends, please don't just hang with me. The same is true here about what a lot of people refer to as warfare pray. I've been inundated with that all my life. I've been told, J.D., you know, your prayers are way too anemic. They don't really work. Your prayer, you pray for things like greater love of the gospel. You pray for greater faith. You pray for opportunities to preach the word with boldness. And that's all good. But none of that stuff is helpful until we bind the strong man. Paul has given you in Ephesians two model prayers, which we studied in detail. Ephesians 1, 15-23, and Ephesians 3, 14-21, where he documents what he prays for the church. And in neither of them is he binding and casting out demons. Even here in this passage, verse 18, he tells them exactly what to pray. Look at verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit. And all prayer and supplication, making supplication for all the saints, which means asking stuff for stuff for them. Verse 19, and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. He says, pray for open doors for the gospel. Nowhere in this section or any other section does Paul instruct Christians to obsess over praying against demonic activity. The weapons of warfare are pretty simple. The belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the spread of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, prayer. Can I summarize all of those for you? Faith in the gospel. He's saying let the gospel cover every part of you so that when it's on your head and on your feet and in your hands and in your heart and in your mouth and around your waist, then you will overcome the work of the enemy. 
You're like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Praying in the Spirit, verse 18, that's got to mean something. Well, we already looked in Ephesians at what praying in the Spirit means. You remember Ephesians 3? Paul said when you had a sense of the breadth and the height and the depth and the length of the love of God, then you would be filled with all the fullness of God. So what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? It means to pray with a sense of how wide and how high and how long and how deep God's love is. That's what it means to pray in and through the gospel. And, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Aren't we supposed to bind the strong man? I mean, didn't Jesus pretty, pretty clearly talk about that? The place he talked about that was Luke 11. And the place where he makes that statement, Jesus actually told a parable when he made that statement that explained what he meant. And a lot of times people separate those two, so let me put them together for you. You don't need to turn there. But Jesus makes the statement about the strong man, the stronger man, and all that kind of stuff. And then he tells uh, just a great parable that I think we missed because... Because I think it's actually probably pretty funny when he told it. It won't be funny when I tell it because I'm not Jesus. But he, here's the way it went. Um, he said, okay, so there's this guy, and he lives with a de- demon. And nobody really wants a demon as a roommate, right? I mean, some of you had one this year, and the year ended, and you're really glad they're gone. And the demon didn't pay his half the rent. The demon never cleaned up. And so he says when he kicked the demon out, the guy went through, and he cleaned up. And he's excited because now the demon's no longer there to leave his milk and his, you know, leave the toilet unflushed. And it's just a nasty place. So he cleans up the place. The demon's gone. Well, the demon gets out and realizes how good he had it back at this man's house, which obviously represents his life. And he's like, hmm, that was a great place. But it was just really tough, just me and that guy, because we're always getting in arguments. What I need to do is I need to find some buddies so that we'll go back and just kind of take over the whole house. So I'll, you know, have a majority rule. So we get six of his friends, and Jesus said the seven of them come back and live in this guy's house. And Jesus makes the statement, and the last state of that man was worse than the first. Now follow In that context, Jesus talked about the stronger man who keeps out the strong man. And the point of his parable is this. The point is not just the kicking out of the demons. The point is letting the presence of Jesus so fill your life and so rule every part because he is the only one who is strong enough to keep out the devil when he comes back. You throw the demon out and don't put Jesus in control. See? You don't put Jesus in control and the demon just comes back with seven times more strength. Jesus says the way, only way to get rid of a strong man is the presence of a stronger man in that house to keep him out. And that strong man isn't you, by the way. A stronger man is not you. That's Jesus. The point is clear. If you want to keep the devil out of your life, you have to have an active relationship with one much stronger than him, which is not you. It's Jesus. So if you want to go to war against demons, just let Jesus be strong in your life. Don't focus on the demons at all. Just let Jesus be large in your life. Let Him be in control. Let the gospel saturate every part of you. That's what Paul is saying here with these pieces of armor. Again, let it cover your head. Let it cover your, I mean, truth and righteousness and salvation. My problem with those different, is trying to figure out what, what the difference is in all those. Truth and faith and salvation, they're all the same, essentially. Because what he's saying is you're putting faith in the gospel in every single part of you. Because when something is covered and fortified in the gospel, Satan can't touch it. You want to keep Satan out of your marriage? Then you need to learn what it means to establish and ground your relationship in the gospel. Don't get out your wedding album and anoint it with holy oil and try to figure out what went wrong in the ceremony and what demon planted what. Don't wait till your spouse is sleeping and pour oil on their head and drive the demons out of them. It may make you feel good, but that's... No! If your marriage... You don't want to say to mess with your marriage. Learn to saturate it and ground it in the gospel. You're like, well, I don't really know what that means. 
Let us teach you. Come to us and let us teach you what that means. You want to keep Satan from messing with your self-esteem? Driving you into depression? Then learn to establish your identity in the gospel. You want to be able to resist his temptations in your soul that drive you and addict you? Then let the gospel fill you with satisfaction in God's presence and love in your life. The command is not to do warfare per se. The command only... Verse 10, the command. This is the command. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Be strong in the Lord. Um, Scholars tell us, commentators, that whenever Paul uses the phrase ha kyrios in Greek, the Lord, it's a reference not to God, like universe, that dimension of God, but a reference specifically to Jesus. So what... Paul is telling them is be, watch, be strong in the story of Jesus. Be strong in the gospel and in the power of his might. And that is how you will overcome and vanquish the enemy. Or just think about the metaphor of darkness that he uses. He calls these the power of darkness, right? I mean, think about the metaphor. How do you do war against the darkness? If you walk into a room and it is dark, how do you go to war against the darkness? I don't walk in and be like, you know, I command you, be gone, darkness, or you know, try to figure out where the darkness is coming from and plug it up so it won't come seep in there anymore. You don't fight the darkness and throw punches at it. You just flip on the stinking light. And the presence of the light drives out all the darkness immediately. Sometimes people focus on Satan when they ought to be focusing on applying the gospel to themselves. For example... I'll give you a couple of biblical examples here. I'm realizing I'm giving you a lot of information, but, but listen to this. 1 Corinthians 1, when Paul is addressing the Corinthian church because they're so divided against each other. And you remember, Paul in Romans 16 had said that the spirit of division came from Satan. Right? And the Corinthian church was like the Jerry Springer show of churches because it was got dysfunction coming out the wazoo. So when Paul is talking to them about their division, he never tells them in 1 Corinthians to rebuke the spirit of division, not one time. Instead, he tells them to be united in their minds and charitable to each other. In other words, apply the gospel to this relationship, and that will drive that demon out. 1 Corinthians 5, when he talks about the problem of immorality in the church. But you remember 1 Corinthians 7, Paul said that it's Satan who tempts the saints to immorality. And the church in Corinth, I mean... I mean, because you know the problem there, if you remember when we studied this, is you got a guy in the Corinthian church who was sleeping with his mom. Oh, yeah. And you know, some scholars are like, well, maybe it was his stepmom. You know, that doesn't really matter to me, because if you call her mom and take her to the prom, either way, that's a bad deal, okay? <laughs> We're talking about some messed up sexual stuff going on in the church in Corinth. Paul does not tell them in Corinthians to rebuke the spirit of incest. Instead, he urges the Corinthians to exercise church discipline and encourage this guy to repent. That means when my kids are rude to each other, right? I don't pull them in this room and grab their head and be like, Demons out! No, I try to teach my kids what the gospel is because it is the gospel that transforms their relationships. Let Jesus be strong in your life. Let him be present. The demonic cannot touch you. You say, well, pastor, what's the danger What's the danger of doing some of the other stuff? Yeah, I realize in the scale of things, it's probably not that harmful, except most of the time it keeps you from focusing on what you ought to be focusing on. 
right? Christian growth is growing in the gospel. And some people get so focused on the other that they forget the main thing that God has told them to do. I'll give you an example. It's sort of an easy one to, to track here. Um, I learned a lot of this stuff because a friend of mine in college, his mom, was, man, she was all into this kind of spiritual warfare stuff. And the first year of college, this guy had a pickup truck that he drove to college, and it got stolen. Um, we ended up finding it, but somebody broke in the pickup truck and stole it. His mom came down and, uh, and was like, man, it's my fault the truck got stolen. I was like, really? She's like, yeah. I was, and I said, I thought it was his fault because everywhere he goes, he left the keys in the ignition. I mean, I'm just throwing that out there. No, she says, it's my fault. She said, before he left for college, I got like, you know, oil and I anointed the doors and I anointed the engine and the, the tires. I was like, like Castro oil? And he's like, no, 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 like holy oil. And I was like, oh, holy spirit oil. Yeah, she said, yeah. She's like, and we anointed all the parts of the truck. But I forgot to anoint the back window, and that's where the guy broke in. <laughs> Clearly, it's my fault. And I was like, I mean, you know, I don't want to be respectful. I'm not trying to mock, but I was like, it actually would have been better for you to teach your son to be responsible and not leave the keys in the ignition when he went somewhere. That probably would have been a better tact. And you get so focused, right? You see what's happening? You're getting so focused on some dimension that you neglect the very things you ought to be doing. What happens is some people get so focused on this weird kind of realm that they neglect the fact that the way you grow in God is to apply the gospel to every part of your life. And I am against everything that would distract you from that one great task. You want Satan out of your marriage? Ground it in the gospel. You want, sa- you, you want Satan to get out of your habits? You want him to get out of your self-esteem? You want to get out of... You want him out of your life, ground your life in the gospel and cover your body in every part of you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in Jesus and the power of his might. And he can't touch you. Here's my point. People engage in warfare wrongly by making it weird and superstitious rather than by simply being strong in the Lord or strong in the gospel. Now, before I end this today, let me just real quick tell you what I'm not saying through all this, because I don't want there to be any confusion, because this is, I know, a big topic. All right? Two or three things I'm not saying, and then I'm going to give you a conclusion and wrap this up. Number one, I'm not saying we never have direct encounters with demons. I am not saying we never have direct encounters with demons. Probably you do more so than you realize. I have seen it personally with my own eyes. And I want you to understand that every believer has authority over demons, the same authority of Jesus through the gospel. You remember the whole Sons of Sceva story where, you know, Jesus, I know, Paul, I know, who are you? What Paul was telling these Ephesians is, here's what you would say back to that demon in that situation. In the middle of the demon's speech, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, you interrupt him and be like, oh, you know Jesus? Oh, well, that's great because I know Jesus too. And I'm in Jesus and Jesus is in me. Therefore, I have his authority. Therefore, by his authority, you have to flee and you have to leave. Right? Because I am in Him. I am in Him. I am in Christ. If He is messing with a certain part of your life, what you say to Him is, I've yielded the part of my life that you're wanting to mess with to Him, to Jesus, and it belongs to Him. If you want to mess with that part, you've got to go talk to Him. If you engage in warfare with Satan, you might get messed up. You might end up beaten up like the sons of Sceva. But if you just stand strong in Jesus, you've got nothing to worry about. Just be strong in the Lord, Paul says, and the power of His might. 
Number two, I am not saying that healthy Christians cannot be afflicted themselves by demons. I'm not saying healthy Christians cannot be afflicted themselves by demons. So a lot of times people ask, can Christians get demon-possessed? It's actually, that question comes from a bad English translation. The word demon-possessed is never used in the Bible. The word in the Bible in Greek means demonized. Can you be demonized as a believer and afflicted or afflicted by a demon? The answer to that is clearly yes. Any part of you that is not surrendered to Jesus and placed under the protection of his blood can be afflicted and manipulated by the demons. I don't even like to say, watch this, I don't even like to say any part of you that is not surrendered to God because most of you will think that all of your life is surrendered to God and you're not openly rebelling in, in a particular area. What I mean is any part of you that is not grounded in the gospel. Many of you, your marriage is surrendered to God, but you've never learned how to relate to each other through the gospel. Many of you have never learned to see yourself and your dreams and your ambitions through the gospel. And so even though it is surrendered to God, it is still open to manipulation by Satan because you haven't learned to put the armor of God on top of it. See? So no, a Christian cannot be demon-possessed in the sense that a demon takes over the core of your being because at the core of every true believer is the gospel. So Satan can't rule that part. But those parts of your life where the gospel has not taken over and become the pattern and foundation, the demon can afflict and take control of you. And this includes your marriage, your temper, your emotions, your ambitions, your self-esteem, your love of money, anything. Many of you, listen, your problems are spiritually, demonically empowered problems. And it's because you haven't learned to ground that part of your life in the gospel. Finally, thirdly, I'm not saying that when we pray, we should do so as if we're ignorant of the spiritual forces at work in our world. We're just not supposed to obsess about them or undergo a bunch of techniques and rituals to, encounter, to counter them. I give you as an example how I pray for my children. I did this last night. I say, God, after they've gone to sleep, God, please protect them from the lies and the deception. There is an enemy who is smarter than their daddy who will make falsehood and idolatry and sin and wickedness look better than what I'm teaching them. Please protect them from the lies. Help them to see the beauty of the gospel. I pray with an awareness that that world is out there, but I don't fix it on and I focus on the progress of the gospel in their hearts. Y'all, if I could open, listen, if I could open your eyes to let you see that spirit world, it would drive you in such desperation to God. I mean, when people saw angels, they almost died. Imagine what it would be like to lay your eyes on a demon. If you saw that, you would be filled with such a sense that would drive you to God. You would realize that these temptations that you're engaging in are not harmless temptations. They are the plan and the schemes of an enemy who wants your absolute destruction. You may think it's not that big of a deal. You're like, I'm not really surrendered to God, but I'm not a bad person. You don't realize that when you say, I will, I'll do what I want to do instead of what God wants me to do, you are participating in cosmic treason, cosmic treason that is led by Satan, cosmic treason which is designed to take you to the same place that he is going. I will is the mantra of hell. And some of you need to open your eyes to the fact that this is not a game. It's not harmless. It's not nothing. It's not, I'm still a good person. This is, I am either under the lordship of Jesus Christ or I am marching to the drumbeat of Satan. If I could open your eyes, you would see that, but I can't. These realities are talked about 
to be perceived by faith. Believer, if I could open your eyes to let you see the spirit world that is there on your behalf. It's like the stars in heaven, Jesus said. I mean, that's a lot. If you could see how, I mean, Psalm 91, 12 says that you can't even stub your toe without an angel overseeing it and approving it. If you could see your eyes, you would see how absolutely in control God is of everything in your life and how even in the midst of pain, God is exercising tender care because that world is everywhere and they are doing His bidding. All right? Why don't you bow your heads and let me pray over you. Let me ask you right now, with your heads bowed, if you... you've never surrendered to King Jesus I want to give you a chance to do that right now one or two people is in control of your life either him or you and if you're in control you're under the domain of Satan if you never surrendered to Jesus to say Jesus all of it it's yours everything no conditions all of it Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin, to release you from anything that keeps you separate from God. It's a gift. You have to receive it. If you've never received that gift, you say, Jesus, I surrender and I receive you as my Savior. Save me from this virus of wickedness that work within me. Father, I pray for those at this campus and all of our campuses that right now put their trust in you. God, are being delivered from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. Father, I pray that we as believers would live with the recognition and the knowledge of the world we cannot see. I pray and ask that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.